0: Daniel Berrigan once said, I think hope is itself an act, a very big leap, which in a sense defies the grim facts always about us and opens up new ways of thinking about things. Welcome to the 34th episode of St. Dimfna's Playbook, the SDP, if you want to be cool, a production of the Grexley Podcast Network. My name is Tommy, I'm a cradle Catholic, a marriage and family therapist, a husband and father of five boys, four on earth and one in heaven. Love you, Luke. And I'm here to fill the void of Catholic conversations about mental health because we need to remember that we might be called upon to hold the hope for the hopeless and might need to ask another to do the same for us at some point in our lives. We like to kick it off around here with a quick refresh of our notifications. It's time for St. Dymphna's Mentions. (laughs) First up, a Christian pastor recently tweeted, quote, you probably don't need pills or therapy. You do need to repent of your sin and turn to Jesus Christ. And predictably, I want to go on a rant about it. Oh boy, I'm not really sure where to begin. Well, actually, uh, I am. I'll I'll begin by saying yes, 100% we all need to repent of our sins and turn to Jesus Christ. I think it's important to underscore this before I tackle the rest. The thing is, that true statement has absolutely nothing to do with the first part of the tweet, the you probably don't need pills or therapy part. Let me start with this. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, Neither he nor his parents sinned. It is so that the works of God might be made visible through him. This is from the Gospel of John, chapter 9, and I thought I'd point to this before getting into the mental health portion of my rant because I think it's important to debunk this claim that we are sick or unwell because of our sins. That seems to be what the pastor is suggesting. Maybe you wouldn't be mentally ill if you repented of your sins, but it's pretty clear that Jesus does not agree with this take. Like, it's abundantly clear. Now, on to the next part uh, that I have a big issue with, the stigmatizing attitude toward proper mental health treatment. You probably don't need pills or therapy. How can a pastor make this kind of claim? First of all, therapy would be an extremely helpful thing for almost all of us. Where else in our lives do we take the time to deeply explore our thoughts, our feelings, our actions? Where else in our lives do we learn how to cope in a healthy way with difficulties that we're facing? Where else do we get an objective view of how we're doing? Someone to bounce ideas off of, someone to help us find our way forward through the darkness i think we need to debunk this sadly popular myth in christian circles that therapy is some sort of i'm the victim blame everyone else and take no responsibility for myself kind of experience it isn't that at all and i'm not sure where this idea comes from maybe like tv or movies wherever it comes from it's unhelpful and it needs to be dismantled now in terms of the pills (laughs) the thing this Christian pastor is missing, and a whole bunch of other people are missing too just to be fair, is that mental illness is often a biological brain issue. It can be caused by issues with neurotransmitters in the brain, and this is something that medication needs to help fix. Certainly as a therapist, I can help you shift your perspective, or look at a situation in a different manner, but I can't help synapses pick up neurotransmitters any better. I'm just not that good. And because mental illness is often a biological issue there should not be any stigma around taking medication for that issue just like how no one gives me a hard time for taking medication for my biologically caused hypertension no one should give anyone a hard time for taking medication for depression just as one example Christian stigmatization of mental health experiences and mental health treatment, in my opinion, is absolutely reprehensible. And I, and hopefully you'll join the cause as well, am here to do anything and everything to root it out, destroy it, and help people hear that seeking out help is a sign of strength, not a sign of weakness. On to the next topic, Australia's Catholic Church chose mental health as the theme of its Social Justice Sunday, which just happened on August 30th. So, you know, a bright spot when it comes to uh, the church fighting for mental and emotional well-being in juxtaposition to that previous topic. According to Vatican News, the Catholic Church in Australia is calling on society to take mental illness seriously, saying it affects all, quote, right across the board. There is no section of society which is not touched by mental health problems. Church institutions, especially parishes, can help reach out to those suffering from mental strain. In the lead-up to the August 30th observance, the Australian Catholic Bishops' Conference released a 19-page social justice statement, 2020-2021, examining the extent, gravity, and causes of mental ill health in Australian society and urging action to address them, entitled, To Live Life to the Full, Mental Health in Australia Today. The statement calls on faith communities, governments, and individuals to make mental health a priority. The article went on to note, While welcoming the deinstitutionalization of mental health care in Australia, the country's bishops say that without adequate funding of community mental health services, many disadvantaged groups fall through the safety nets. I was so pumped to see this. A little light to keep us going in the fight to lead the church to become the most outspoken advocate for good mental and emotional health in the world. Shout out to the Aussies. May we here in the States follow your lead. So, each episode, I'm going to introduce you to a saint who can help us along our journey with mental health and wellness as Catholics. It's called Front Request, and today I'm here to share a bit about St. Kateri Tecquita. <laughs> In 1676 in the Mohawk village of Osernen in present-day New York, Kateri's mother was baptized and educated by French missionaries and brought her daughter up in the Christian faith. After a smallpox outbreak resulted in the death of her parents and younger brother, Kateri was adopted by her aunt and uncle who were strict about her staying away from anything related to the Christian faith or the missionaries' way of life in general. They also pushed her to get married. Kateri continued to refuse the pressure to get married and this directly resulted in her imposed loneliness as her family punished her with dangerous threats, harsh ridicule, and an intense workload that was not expected of others. When she was 18 years old, she met Father Jacques de Lamberville, expressed her desire to become a Christian, and was baptized just a year later into the Christian faith. When news spread of her official conversion, the ridicule and threats only picked up their pace. At one point, she was even accused of sorcery. This atmosphere led to her decision to run away and see 1677 to join the christians at a jesuit mission just south of montreal she prayed and offered up suffering continuously for the conversion of her family, which is quite incredible considering the suffering, isolation, and loneliness they imposed on her. Her perseverance, incredible trust in Christ, and willingness to continue to pray and stay close to God in the midst of her isolation is a wonderful example to all of us suffering in a similar manner, and it goes without saying that St. Ketari is ready and waiting to take our needs to the throne of God with, for us without hesitation. We like to close this part of the podcast out with a prayer. St. Kateri, you are revered as the mystic of the American wilderness. Though orphaned at the age of four and left with a scarred face and damaged eyesight from illness, you were esteemed among the Mohawk tribe. When you asked to be baptized a Christian, you subjected yourself to the abuse by your people and were forced to run away. You endured many trials, but still flowered in prayer and holiness, dedicating yourself totally to Christ. I ask you to be my spiritual guide along my journey through life. Through your intercession, I pray that I may always be loyal to my faith in all things. Amen. And now, you can't do therapy over Twitter, but I'm happy to take your tweets and help you explore a bit in the hopes of finding a light in the darkness. It's time for Twitter therapy. Angela gets us started. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about spiritual abuse, what it is, what does it look like? I've been having some hard conversation with friends and family that work for parishes and Catholic schools. Too often, leadership asks people to go beyond their limits and uses words like, it's your vocation, or this is God's work and sacrifice as pressure, justification, or manipulation. Thank you, Angela, for sending this question in, and let's all join together in prayer for everyone facing spiritual abuse, for healing, for justice, for a better church and a better world. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. So let's start with what spiritual abuse is and what it looks like. Uh, Spiritual abuse is abuse administered under the guise of religion, including harassment or humiliation, which may result in psychological trauma. Religious abuse may also include the misuse of religion for selfish, secular, or ideological ends, such as the abuse of a clerical position. Thank you, Wikipedia. And now for a look at what it actually looks like, a little bit from an article by Erica Hammonds on the Australian website Common Grace. There are some characteristics of spiritual abuse that Christians can become aware of to help them identify abuse and an environment where abuse is likely to take place. Spiritual abusers often exploit the doctrine of fallenness to accuse, berate, critique, attack, belittle, condemn, or produce guilt in the victim. They may cultivate or take advantage of the victim's conscientiousness in regards to moral matters in order to make them feel like the real problem is the victim's inferior spirituality. They may try to convince the victim that since everyone is sinful, their abuse is normal and they shouldn't expect anything different. They may pressure the victim to move on as though ongoing hurts are a result of ungodly bitterness or resentment. They may demand that forgiveness equate uh, to the restoration of all previous conditions of the relationship. Use the busyness, stress, pressures, or responsibilities of ministry to excuse abuse. They may blame outbursts, aggression, physical violence on the um, the pressures of ministry, making the victim feel that they can't critique the abuse without also critiquing a valuable ministry. They might use the Bible to justify abusive behavior or insinuate or explicitly state that if the victim understands the Bible differently, the difference of opinion is actually a product of sin. They might use their apparently sophisticated knowledge of the Bible to position themselves outside the teaching and authority of church leaders. They might use the Christian community to protect the abuser and isolate the victim. The abuser may make himself or herself vital to significant ministries, in turn making the victim feel responsible for their possible collapse if they reveal the abuse. The abuser may manipulate others so that they think highly of the abuser and little of the victim, making the victim feel like they wouldn't have any support if they did expose the abuse. They might lie to the victim about how they are regarded by the Christian community, isolating them from possible sources of support. They might attribute accusations against them to the works of Satan, use Bible passages about generosity to justify controlling the victim's access to money. They might use Bible passages about faithfulness in marriage to justify limiting the victim's social life. They might use bible passages about rebuking to justify verbal abuse and use bible passages about sexuality to justify rape and sexual assault so i mean as you can see this is all really really serious stuff and goes to underscore just how evil and reprehensible an individual who engages in spiritual abuse of others really is it almost leaves us shaking just to consider it The last part of your question regarding leadership, asking people to go beyond their limits and using spiritual means to encourage them to do so seems to be definitely a form of spiritual abuse and is something that must be rooted out. Catholics must stand up against the manipulation and exploitation of workers within the church and fight for a just wage, acceptable work conditions, and proper treatment in line with the gospel because if we can't get it right within the church, how can we stand up and demand the rest of the world to get it right? anonymous is next years ago in my youth i did some awful things i confessed them as a young adult but now nearly retirement age i still feel guilty as i think about how really bad these sins were how do i reconcile the guilt with knowing god's forgiven me this is such a beautiful and important question and i think a whole lot of us have had to work through uh work through this so thank you so much for sending it in let's all start by praying for the Blessed Mother to intercede on behalf of Anonymous and all of us struggling to feel the infinite ocean of God's mercy and instead feel ourselves drowning in our own guilt. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. This question is such a beautiful summary of why I always say that feelings matter when it comes to our faith. Our faith is primarily about a relationship, and boy, oh boy, do feelings matter in relationships. And when we feel guilty, unforgivable, unlovable, the truth of God's infinite mercy doesn't quite hit us in the way we wish it would and the way he wishes it would. So first, I would say, know that you aren't alone. There are a whole bunch of us out here silently suffering from the weight of our past sins. Even though we know in our minds that God has forgiven us, he loves us, and he wants us to be saved, even with all of that, we still contemplate our past behaviors, we still feel awful about them, and part of us still feels unforgivable for the deeds we engaged in. One important thing to do is pray pray that you can hand over all your feelings of guilt and shame and leave them at the foot of the cross pray that god may take those feelings and deal with them on your behalf we remember that jesus said come to me all you who labor and are burdened and i will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me for i am meek and humble of heart and you will find rest for yourselves for my yoke is easy and my burden light another important idea from the gospels that has helped me with this those who are well do not need a physician but the sick do go and learn the meanings of the words i desire mercy not sacrifice i did not come to call the righteous but sinners we are sick We are guilty, we are sinners, and we are exactly the ones who Jesus came for. He came for those of us suffering scruples. He came for those of us suffering from second-guessing. He came for those of us who feel unlovable and unforgivable. I'll I'll offer up a therapy tip here as well. Take out a piece of paper and fold it in half. On one side of the paper, write down what your inner critic says. You know, the critical, the irrational, the guilt-ridden on the other side of the paper write a self-compassionate and rational response for each thing you wrote on the first side of the paper this can help you to reorganize and reframe your thinking around past mistakes and behaviors and help your brain to sort it all out and help you move forward with compassion one last little quote for contemplation to wrap up here and it comes from the diary of saint faustina fear nothing dear soul whoever you are the greater the sinner the greater his right to your mercy, O Lord. A different Anonymous wraps us up. Matthew seventeen fifteen, the Catholic Bible translation, whether NAB or Douay Reims, is literally the only Bible translation in the world in 2020 which still uses the word lunatic in this verse. Why? I understand there's a footnote that clarifies epilepsy or compar- comparable condition, but why not just change the word lunatic to something more accurate? I would imagine a Catholic with a mental illness looking at this verse in Scripture uh, and saying to him or herself, is the Catholic Church calling me a lunatic? I've never heard this addressed before well this certainly is an interesting question that i didn't expect to get so thank you anonymous let's start by praying for an end an end to dehumanizing language for an end to negatively shaping the view uh, the way we view groups of people by the use of our language So if you're like me, you probably don't have this part of the Bible memorized, or any part, really, for that matter. So I did the homework of logging into the USCCB website and pulling out the whole thing for all of us for context. When they came to the crowd, a man approached, knelt down before him, and said, Lord, have pity on my son, for he is a lunatic and suffers severely. Often he falls into fire and often into water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Jesus said in reply, O faithless and perverse generation, how long will I be with you? How long will I endure you? Bring him here to me. Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him. And from that hour, the boy was cured. Then the disciples approached Jesus in private and said, why could we not drive it out? He said to them, because of your little faith, amen, I say to you. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. And the footnote on the verse in question reads, A lunatic, this description of the boy is peculiar to Matthew. The word occurs in the New Testament only here and in Matthew 4.24, and means one affected or struck by the moon. The symptoms of the boy's illness point to epilepsy and attacks of this were thought to be caused by the faces of the moon. Now, if you're a nerd like me, you're probably now interested in the origins of the word because you never thought about how the luna in the word lunatic is connected to the moon, and yep, it is. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, the word stems from the Latin luna, meaning moon, and the attic suffix, which means of the kind of. The word originally referred to a kind of insanity supposedly dependent on the phases of the moon. And let's turn to Wikipedia for a little more history on the word, only because I find this kind of fascinating. The term lunatic derives from the Latin word (laughs) Lunaticus everybody can at me on how I pronounced that wrong, which originally referred mainly to epilepsy and madness as diseases thought to be caused by the moon. The Bible records lunatic in the Gospel of Matthew, which has been interpreted as a reference to epilepsy. By the 4th and 5th centuries, astrologers were commonly using the term to refer to neurological and psychiatric diseases. Philosophers such as Aristotle and Pliny the Elder argued that the full moon induced individuals with bipolar disorder by providing light during the nights, which would otherwise have been dark and affecting susceptible individuals um, through the well-known route of sleep deprivation. Until at least 1700, it was a common belief that the moon influenced fevers, rheumatism, episodes of epilepsy, and other diseases. Okay, okay, back to your question, I promise. Would it make sense to update this translation? If it happened, happened, there wouldn't be a need for a footnote, right? And it might more accurately read, Lord, have pity on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely. Often he falls into fire and into water. So that makes sense. However, on the flip side, we could go really down a rabbit hole of updating translations to make things sound more accurate to our modern use of words and language. One example that jumped to my mind is when Jesus responds to Mary at the wedding of Cana with... Woman, what concern of this is mine? And today it sounds like he's uh, talking in a disrespectful tone. And we might think of changing it uh, to something softer to our ears because he wouldn't disrespect Mary, right? However, the language that he uses has a meaning. And it causes us to uh, point, it, it points us to like a really big truth about Mary that we would miss if we updated the translation. So in the end here, I think the problem continues to lie with the stigmatization of mental health symptoms and treatment in our church and our world. And I guess that's where I hope we could all put all of our efforts uh, to fight back against that. I hope that helps. All right, everyone, that's it for today's episode. Remember, you can email, DM, or tweet your questions and situations if you'd like me to address them in the future. I'd be happy to keep you anonymous or not, whatever you want. Be sure to check out patreon.com slash grexley to see all the great things they've got going on over there and support the cause. Until next time, go easy on yourselves. Take care of yourselves. And if you feel like you're in a place where you can't even bring yourself to pray, don't worry, I'll be praying for you. And so will St. Dimphna.